Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow and enjoy the episode. Um, welcome um, to Judges. We're in, this is actually a lie. This is part two. I actually borrowed Dave's um, slide show um, so we would look all professional and whatnot. But um, anyway, there we go. Yeah. Um, so what are, what are we going to do is do a little brief intro. We're in Judges. We're looking at Gideon. Gideon is um, he's a bit of a legend in Judges. Um, he's probably debatably, well, I'd say he's the most pivotal judge. And um, he kicks in after Deborah. And Dave did a whole lot of work last week looking at Gideon in the, in the early part of Gideon's um, life and uh, his ministry. Um, but there are a couple of things I just wanted to talk to you about briefly. And the first thing that I wanted to talk to you about is a cycle called the Deuteronomic cycle. Actually, a word I promised I'd never say. But that's, if you ever see that kind of term come up, what they're talking about is this cycle here, which um, we have seen many times throughout uh, the book of Judges, where you have peace and good times. Uh, people get complacent and they forget God. Bad times happen as they um, fall into the worship of other, other gods. Uh, they find themselves in a miserable state and they cry out for help. And then God, and that's part of their repenting phase, God hears their cries, he sends a deliverer, and then uh, we go back to step one. There are good times again. And so it's, it's, a, it's a cycle that we see all through Judges. We can see it through Kings as well. We can see it in a lot of the Old Testament. It was a pattern of um, Israel's interaction with God. All right, but um, what we're going to quickly look at now is, can you go on to this next slide? Okay, so one of the other key things that we're looking at here, this makes Gideon so quickly, Dave covered this up last week. So what we're going to do is we're going to quickly go through these, uh, this is called a chiasm. A chiasm is like a, a very common uh, Hebraic or Hebrew um, um, way of actually trying to tell you what, this, what it's all about. And so in Judges, there's a chiasm there. There's chiasms all throughout Scripture. If you study Hebrew, they become a lot clearer to you. It's much harder to pick them when you're you're reading in English. But if you're reading in Hebrew, it becomes very obvious. And it's very obvious to the Hebrew readers. So if you just flick through these really quickly, Luke, you'll see that we have this chiasm where all these like matching um, parts come together. And you'll find Gideon right at the center. And right at the, the center of the Gideon story is this um, it's a shift in Gideon's life from being uh, um, um, opposing idolatry to promoting idolatry. And right in the center of this is that they want Gideon to rule over them. And so what, what that is saying is in the book of Judges, Dave would have covered this last week if you, if you are here, that, um, that the, central, um, the central desire they have in Judges, and they're, and they're setting the scene for the kingdom of Israel to start where Israel wants rulers and they're desperate for a ruler to be like the other nations. Um, but So that's setting the scene um, in Gideon. So if we move on to the next slide. Okay, so, so far Dave's covered in uh, Judges 6, the call of Gideon and the sign 1. Does anyone remember what sign 1 was? Anyone remember that? It's a, it was a barbecue, okay? The first, the first sign was when... Um, uh, Gideon met this angel of the Lord, 
and he said, oh, I need a sign. I need to go and rush off and I'll, like, fill something and get some stuff together and make some cakes and all the rest of it and put it on the, on the stone that was the, the angel asked him to do. And then he t- the, the, the angel of the Lord touched it with his staff and it just, like, blasted into flames. And Gideon goes, like, well, that doesn't happen every day. And so that, for Gideon, was a sign. Um, apart from the fact he was talking to an angel, that would have probably been pretty signish as well. So this is another part of that sign. Then he had the first task. Does anyone remember what the first task was? Chainsaw. That's where Dave's like uh, amazing uh, demonstration last week was all about. What he was doing is that God realized, oh, um, I need a bit of, uh, I need some firewood. <laughs> I need some firewood for my um, off for a like a, a proper offering. And I tell you what, the um, the tinder of idols makes the most amazing uh, tinder for an offering to God, okay? That's an amazing point that we could actually dwell on, but we're not going to dwell on it today. The tinder or the leftovers of idols make a fantastic fuel for the worship of God, okay? That would be a great point to make in this sermon, but we're not going to do that. And then there's a summons. Um, uh, Gideon grabs a ram's horn and he blows it. And everyone knows what that means. Uh, there was probably news already spread that the Midianites and their like parties had come to like fight them in a big army. 135,000 people. That's a, that's a lot of people. And um, they have this big summons. And uh, uh, they end up gathering together, I think it was 32,000 people, which they thought was pretty good to have 32,000 people. And um, then with the view that God's called them to go in and do battle with this 135,000 person uh, strong um, Midianite camp. And then uh, understandably to some degree or another, um, Gideon goes, whoa, that's a a fearsome prospect. Us with our 32,000 people are going to go and take on 135,000 people. He said, I need a bit more, God. I need a bit more from you. And so he asked for another sign um, with the fleece. He puts out a fleece. And the, the first part of the fleece is that it comes back wet and the ground is dry. And the other, was, but that wasn't enough to get in. He's like, okay, I, I want an extra confirmation here. He, he puts out the fleece. And once again, the fleece was dry and the ground was wet, which was kind of very peculiar things for Gideon. And it's a strange sign. Um, really, it's an indication of Gideon's lack of faith, but it's also probably a maybe helpful fuel for his courage as he goes off to fight an unwinnable war. Um, so that's where we get to at the end of chapter 6. And we're going to read the Bible together. Um, that's a good thing to do. And so we're in chapter 7 here. And it's called um, Gideon Defeats the Midianites. Now, that's the title in my Bible. I want you guys to think, is that a good title? Gideon Defeats the Midianites. So let's read together. So um, so this is Judges 7. I'll give you a bit of time to find your way there if you want to find it in your Bible. Is it on the board? Did I do it up there? No, I, I think it was too much writing. I decided I wouldn't do it all. But I'm going to read it out to you. So Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the springs of Harod. The army of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hills of Moreah. The Lord said to Gideon, 
you have too many warriors with you. If I let, sorry, and this is a really key passage, by the way. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they have saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell tell the people, uh, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Remember, they're facing a foe of 135,000 Midianites and uh, allies of the Midianites. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cut the water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions, uh, the ram's horns uh, of the other warriors and sent them home. He kept the 300 men with him. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. That night the Lord said, this is sign number four, get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you a victory over them. But if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your uh, servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon took Pura and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The enemies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in the dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent and turned it over and knocked it flat. His companion answered, your dream can only mean one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. Then he said to them, Keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horn, blow your horns too, all around the entire camp, and, the sh- and shout for the, Lord, for the Lord and for Gideon. It was just after midnight, 
after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and a hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly they blew the ram's horn and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, for the, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns and the Lord, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords, those who were not killed fled to places as far away as Beth Shittah near uh, Zereha and to the border of Abel Mihola near Tabath. Then Gideon sent for the warriors of Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, who joined in chasing the army of Midian. Gideon also sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come, uh, come down to attack the Midianites. Cut them off at the shallow crossing of the Jordan River at Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim did as they were told. They captured Oreb and Zeb and two Midianite command, the two Midianite commanders, killing Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. And they continued to chase the Midianites. Afterward, the Israelites brought the heads of um, Orb and Zeb to Gideon. So Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan River. So an amazing story. It's a bit of a frightful story in the, the way it ends. It's a bit gory, but um, the Old Testament has no shortage of gore in it. So um, what, I, um, what I wanted to uh, quickly do is um, just work through what's going on here. There, there's so many things from this story that we could flesh out, so many centers um, that we could choose to dwell upon and there are many great messages that could be um, discussed here right now. One, for example, could be the discerning of God, the signs and the calling. Um, how can we as uh, a community be sure about where God's leading us? Maybe we could use uh, uh, Gideon as an example to us about how we could proceed in, in God's kingdom. In the same way, uh, we can get a picture of God's grace. Although Gideon was, to some extent, a little bit faithless with all his signs that he requested and his lack of courage and his humility um, in thinking that he was less of a person than, he, than, he, than God saw him as a mighty warrior, um, God's grace and faithfulness is evident throughout the story as well, that he continues to work through Gideon, a man who had a very low view of himself and a very low view of uh, their chances against this massive, this massive army. We could talk about the cycles that are occurring of uh, that we talked about earlier on to set the scene. Um, we could talk about the classic structure and the fact that at just the end of the story, uh, we have Israel trying to make Gideon um, their leader or king, if you like. Um, but I'm not going to talk about those things today. What I'm going to talk to you about and I feel this is what God has asked, is that God works his power through human weakness. 
and humility. God works his power through human weakness and humility. All right. What I want to do now is I want to pick a rugby team, all right, because we love rugby in New Zealand. And so I, mm, who are we going to pick? If the village church was to put together a rugby team, who would we choose? Weiss, come up here, buddy. Um, I don't even know what position to put you in. I might put you in several positions, but come up here, Weiss. Weiss, up you come. That was, <laughs> this guy this guy is a given. Yeah. That's enough. Okay, I think I think Weiss would be good. Um what position? I would put you in as center. That would be a frightening prospect. Um I'd have you as center. I could put you in as number eight as well. Yeah. Um who else have we got? Um I think we need a a, a real strong person as well to accompany because we need a front row. I was thinking Dean. Now Dean is Dean is built strong, and I thought, Dean, you can come up here. I'm going to select you. Is that fair? I think he's pretty solid. Strong guy. I need some some speed. I was thinking of a winger. Kelly Kelly wasn't first that came to mind. (laughs) But I love the fact that you think so highly of your daughter-in-law. That's awesome. I was thinking Caleb. Caleb, Caleb, to me, you, you just like, you just scream, I'm a winger, I'm fast, and I'm agile. I was, I'm really pleased to see Jabin's here as well. So Jabin, up yet. Um, I could put you in a number of positions in the, in the back row. Um, you'd probably be quite a good flanker as well. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm selecting people for my team, okay? And this is the way the world would think. I'm, I'm choosing the biggest, the strongest. I'm choosing the fastest. And there are others here I could chose. So I'm just going to stop the demonstration here. I had my eyes on you, Clay, as well, but I'm just going to keep on moving. Um, I'm choosing the biggest, the fastest, possibly the most handsome, the tallest. Um, I'm choosing people who I I know are quick or they've got some quality. And that's the way that we choose, choose things in life. I'd also need to choose a strategist. I'd need to choose, um, a coaching person, and and that's the way that the world does things. We're we're looking for specific attributes, and we choose in that way. Now, that's you guys can grab a seat. Thank you for being demo, a great demonstration there. <clears throat> the other thing that I would probably do if we we're putting in a rugby team is that I would probably um, carve out the weakest. You know what I mean? And that's what they do in rugby teams. And the All Blacks, they're always chopping the of people that don't quite, maybe they lose their form, carve them out of there, um, bring someone new in who's bigger, stronger, faster, and uh, we'll get rid of those people that aren't doing what they should uh, and aren't holding up the end of the bargain. Now, I guess the question here is we've seen how the world thinks. We all know this. Every time the All Black team gets selected, it's based on performance, and the performance is based on a whole range of like physical characteristics. But how does God select a successful team? How does God select a successful team? Well, what's an example of God selecting a good team? Well, he started selecting a team with a guy called Joseph. Joseph Joseph was like God selected him. And what happened to Joseph? 
He was rejected by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He spent years in prison. He was accused of misconduct conduct by a, a lady um, and had his reputation tarnished. And, and he basically had this incredibly humbling, demoralizing experience of being jailed and rejected by his family. God chose him. We get a really interesting example of Saul and David. One thing we hear about Saul is that he's a head taller than the next tallest Israelite. Yeah? And he's handsome. He, he, was, he was a good-looking, tall, imagine muscular guy. And uh, we see Saul gets rejected. And David gets selected. Now, David is such a runt, is such a runt, that when Samuel went to his family to say to um, Jesse, who had seven sons, he didn't actually have seven sons, he had eight sons, but the seven, he, like the eighth was so insignificant that he didn't even bother to, <laughs> to, to call him along. So Jesse had his seven sons here, and Samuel's like, no, nah, it's not one of these. And, and basically Jesse goes, well, there's the runt. So I go and grab the runt like almost laughing to himself, and Samuel says, yes, I want the runt. He didn't even look, he, he, was, he was a peculiar looking guy as well. Like in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a world of like, you know, dark-haired people, he had red hair. He was a strange looking guy, and, um, but he was humble. He was humble. He knew his space, he knew his station, and God could work with him. And so what we see in, in David, and you can see in the story of David and Goliath, is that God will achieve great things with the insignificant. We see this again and again. And um, where are we up to here? Here we go. Can we move on to the next slide? We've got world's recipe and we've got God's recipe. We've got Joseph humbling and we've got Saul and David um, as examples. Can you click to the next slide? Thanks, Luke. And we see in Jesus another example of, like, humility. Jesus, in his entire ministry, he selected a team. Was his team awesome? Were they champions? Were they the strong? Were they the handsome? Were they the, were they the legends of Israel? They were not. He had tax collectors who were outcasts of society and people who had basically turned their backs on their own nation. He had fishermen who were like, probably like shepherds. They were stinky, they were smelly, um, and they were kind of a bit on the scourge of society. And then there were the people that he reached out to meet. He had a whole range of people. He had prostitutes. He had lepers. He had people who were the least, the, the, those excluded from Israel for one reason or another. And he chose his ministry to go out and reach those people. Jesus works his plans through the low and the unlikely. His teaching, if you turn to Matthew 5 in your Bibles, his teaching is radically different to the teaching of the world. 
He starts the Sermon on the Mount with these Beatitudes. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For God, for the God of heaven, sorry, for the kingdom of heaven is there. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the pattern of the kingdom. We have a, we have a situation here where we get a dramatically different image of what success looks like. And I don't mean to exclude wise. You're not excluded because you're big and strong. What God is looking for is people who realize their brokenness. Because in their brokenness, we find humility. And within humility, you find people who are ready to worship and be grateful and attribute glory to God because they know that they do not have the strength in their own power. God is looking for people who have given up on themselves because God can work his power through them. Probably one of the greatest examples of this contrast between the ministry of the world and the ministry of Jesus is through a guy called Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, you all know, Adolf Hitler was greatly influenced by theories of evolution and specifically the survival of the fittest. And we all know what happened in Germany in World War II. But in the build-up to that horrible war, what Hitler did is he cr- tried to create a super empire. He tried to create a super race, a more genetically pure, a more genetically strong race. He went through, and not only did he elevate the handsome, the tall, the strong, in this case, the blonde, the blue-eyed, and the fair-skinned, He went through and he eliminated the dross. He went through and tried to eliminate the humble and lowly and broken. If you were too old, you're gone. You're you're a dead weight to society. You're not going to help us be who we need to be. If you are injured or weak or ill, you're gone. If you're intellectually handicapped, you're gone. So we have a situation where we see the kingdom of man, the kingdom of the world, lived out to its, I don't know if it's its fullest extent. I'd hate to see it worked out any fuller. But that's an example of the kingdom of the world at work. You elevate the powerful, the strong, the intelligent, and you eliminate all the those who are weak, whether it's cognitively weak, physically weak, or people who cannot, uh, in Hitler's view, 
uh, contribute to society. But in the victory of Jesus, we see a very, very different pattern occurring. Jesus himself is the ultimate humiliation. Can I get you guys to um, turn to Philippians 2? Sorry, I'm reading quite a bit of scripture here. I hope that's not a problem to anyone. Um, this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. I think we're there now, are we? Can you get on the slide? Oh, there we go. Look at that. I love it when my notes and slides line up together. It's beautiful. So this is a hymn. It would have been a hymn. It would have been part of their worship in like first century Israel for Christians. I don't know who wrote it, but it looks like Paul has included it in this letter. And this is an amazing uh, passage about who Jesus is. And Paul's challenge to the Philippians was to imitate Christ in this. I'll read it out to you. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see this pattern of God working through weakness, human weakness. And the, the, the amazing thing about Jesus is it was God working in human weakness in a way that was never experienced before, nor will ever be experienced again in the same way. God achieves his victories through the humble through those who have given up on their own strength, who have failed to make a name for themselves and can embrace and realize their complete dependence on God. Jesus was completely dependent on his Father, as he said many times throughout his ministry. Now, uh, what does this mean for our community? Um, it can be really, really, really easy to forget the pattern of Christ, the humility of Christ in the world around us. When we have a world which is celebrating the powerful, the rich, the intelligent, the good-looking, the tall, the fast, it can be easy to fixate on that and disqualify ourselves, like Gideon disqualified himself. When called a mighty warrior, what did he say? His response was, but I am the least of my family, and my family is the least of my clan. And 
we can find ourselves discrediting ourselves. I was talking with a, a gentleman the other day, a lovely, lovely person who has had some hard times in business. And that, that person was really wrestling. And they said to me, look, Angus, I'm struggling because I just have realized that I'm a complete failure. And I haven't achieved what I'd hoped to achieve in my life. And I've reached the stage that I'm at, this person would be about 50, and realized that I'm a failure. And I prayed with a guy, and I prayed with a guy, and I've been like, he's been on my mind a lot since then. And every time I think of him, I pray for him. And as I was preparing this, this, this sermon, it, it just really hit home to me that that gentleman is quite possibly in the most amazing state to be used by God. As a failure in the world's eyes, you come with a position of humility that sets you up for success in God's kingdom because you've already worked out that you can't do it yourself. Now, we're a little community. We're in Narawahia. Narawahia is a, you know, it's got challenges. To, to some degree, us as a church, we're in Narawahia, and Narawahia is kind of like the rejected little town full of broken people, poverty. Dave and I spent some time yesterday cleaning out the remains of some left behind by some homeless people who are living at our back door. Our town is broken. I've never experienced so much tragedy in as a school that I have since working at Narawahia High School. People die within that community regularly. I think probably twice a turn, at least, our school has been suffering one trauma or another. This town is like a little, broken, insignificant town. And we as a church... We're a church of people who are broken in one degree or another. We're either suffering over illness. Many of us have got illnesses. Physical or mental. We could have situations where we're struggling with our own businesses, wondering if we can continue on doing what we're doing. Some of us are leaders in different areas who occasionally feel discouraged that we're not making any difference where we're working. Maybe we're in a situation where our uh, marriages are not easy. Our marriages are hard. And we're learning that we're not able to do things as what we'd hoped Marriage has not panned out the way as a way which we, we hoped it would have panned out on our wedding day. And I guess what I'm saying to us as a community, this broken little community full of frail people, that just maybe God has got you right where he needs you. Just maybe in your illness, your ill health, 
your dysfunctional relationships, your heartaches, your pains, your your dreams that were shattered, just maybe, just maybe, like Joseph, God has got you just where he wants you. And we're small. We're a small little church. Look at us. We're probably smaller this Sunday than we are on some other Sundays, but we're small. Surely we're too insignificant to take on the challenge of blessing our town. Yeah? We're just a little crew. But you know what? We see in Gideon, God being concerned about teams being too big, just in case you might think that you did it yourself under your own strength. This little collection of people here might be just the little collection of people that God is going to use to bring the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to this little town, this little group of easily discouraged, occasionally lacking faith, this little group of people who feel that they don't really fit in in lots of different ways. Maybe you feel like a social outcast in one degree or another. God loves a social outcast. Look at Zacchaeus. It's not just us. This is a a pattern that works through the whole New Testament. We are trusting, I guess, are we trusting in our strength or wealth, in which case we'll never be strong enough, never be wealthy enough, never be smart enough? Or are you just deeply aware of your poverty? And the question there in your poverty, does that lead to dependence on God? Or does that lead to a pity party? We're all pitiful people in our own way. Are you going to have a party about it? Or are you going to direct that brokenness to God and say, Lord, I know that I have no power. I know that I have no significance, that my words are weak. I can't speak straight. And I'm completely dependent upon you. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to um, finish. Um, I don't want to finish. I just wanted to finish by looking at Romans 8, 26. There's some other passages here that I wanted to talk about as well, but we don't ha- have time for those. But Romans 8, 26. Romans 8. If you've never read Romans 8 before, it's a really good, um, put a bookmark there. Um, it's a really great section of scripture right in the middle of Romans. It says, Romans uh, 8.26, it says, And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, when we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays with us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. 
And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. I've talked about this before, and it's a, it's a concept that's blown my mind a little bit, but who is Jesus to us? Jesus is our ticket into heaven, yeah? He's our ticket into heaven. I was just talking to my friend about this the other day. He said, like, we're trying to share the gospel with a guy in the car. We're just taking hunting, and he's wandered away from faith, and how can you not? And so I found myself and my, <laughs> one of my best mates arguing about what the gospel was all about. And he, he, he had this idea that it was a ticket in, and it is a ticket into heaven. He said, you're right, you're right, brother, but it's so much more. In Jesus, we don't just have a ticket into heaven. We have this atoning sacrifice for our life. But he welcomes us as king into his new kingdom. And he doesn't just welcome us into his own kingdom. He welcomes us into his kingdom as a human being, completely aware of human frailty. He knows poverty because he was poor. He knows suffering because he has suffered. He gets us. He gets us. So in Jesus, we have this amazing image, and we see it in Romans 8.28, that the Spirit of Jesus works within us. We are so lost and deluded that we don't often know how to pray, how to communicate with God. And we can feel guilty because of that, because of our own brokenness. For us to understand and gain a picture of Jesus as our great high priest, who is praying for us, and through us, that is a huge comfort. Because I don't know about you, I'm deeply aware of my brokenness and my shame. I'm deeply aware of where I fall short, and I don't deserve to stand before the throne of God. But we have a Savior who does stand before the throne of God and is seated at his right hand. And in him, we have a friend. In him, we have a great high priest who is praying for us. So when we pray, you pray in the confidence that we have a high priest who's collecting up our prayers and taking them to the Father. We are weak like Gideon, and we are small like Gideon's army. But do not let that think less of what God can do through us. God loves an underdog. And I consider ourselves as underdogs. And when you're in the position of an underdog, God is right. Okay, now we can work. Don't hide from your weakness. Don't hide from your frailties. Take them to Jesus as an offering and pray that we might come to the position where we can say, Lord, here I am, send me. I'm going to finish it there because I've run out of time. But let me pray. Lord Jesus, we 
thank you. We thank you that although we are failures, although we fall short, although we are often trivial and unspiritual, Lord, you love us. Lord, I just pray that in our awareness of our weakness, that we might be able to come before you, Lord, to to bow before your throne and to know that in our position of weakness, that you are able to work your power. Lord, you work out your strength through human weakness. And Lord, I pray that here in this community today and this year, that you might work out your strength and your power, the power of your kingdom in our little community. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.